last week's celebration was such a blessing, wasn't it? And, and uh, 10 years together is a journey. And so now we're starting year 11 here. And we are still in the, the gospel of Mark as we've been all year long. And we're in Mark chapter 10. And so if you have your Bibles and tur- turn to Mark chapter 10, we're going to be covering verses 32 through 45. So I mentioned this several weeks ago. In the gospel of Mark, there are three occasions where Jesus prophesies about his death and resurrection. There's three times as he's traveling and preaching and, and doing miracles and, and, and things like that. Whenever he's with his disciples, he lets them know about his upcoming death and resurrection. And when that happens, three things always take place. There's a pattern there. So the first time that this happened was in Mark chapter 8, verses 30, 31 through 33. He says, the Son of Man will suffer many things. He'll be rejected, be killed, and after three days, rise again. And after he prophesies about his death and resurrection, the disciples do something out of pride and self-interest. Peter takes Jesus aside and actually rebukes him. Jesus, what are you talking about? You're going to die. And, and what? No, you're the Messiah. You're not going to be killed And so he takes Jesus aside to rebuke him, and the disciples are looking there and watching this play out, and then Jesus rebukes Peter in a way that we'll never forget. Get behind me, Satan! Right? Because Peter was tempting Jesus in the same way Jesus was tempted by Satan in the the desert. And so immediately following that rebuke, though, uh, Jesus then teaches about humility. Okay? So those three things happen. He prophesies. And then the, the disciples say or do something out of self-interest or pride, and then he teaches on humility. And so then we see it again take place in, in chapter 9. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He says it is plain as day. And so this time when he prophesies about his death and resurrection, the disciples remember the response last time. They don't say anything. They're afraid to ask. They, they, they just keep their mouths shut. And then they start having a conversation about who's the greatest disciple among them. They do something out of pride and self-interest. I'm the best. No, I'm the best player on the team. You know, they're going back and forth, and they're arguing over who's the best. So then Jesus cuts into this pride-filled conversation and teaches on humility. He says, if, any, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So prophecy, pride, and then teaching on humility. So we are up to Mark chapter 10, 32 through 45, and it's entitled, Jesus Foretells His Death a Third Time. So you know what's going to happen after that? The disciples are going to say, say or do something out of pride and self-interest. And you know what's going to happen after that? Jesus is going to teach over humility. This is the third time we've seen this pattern play out. You know, when there's something really repetitive like this in Scripture, I, I, I always like to remind myself, well, Jesus shouldn't have to teach something more than once for it to be considered more important, right? But when we, when we see a repetitive lesson like this play out in Scripture, I, I, I think it's, it's not so much that we, we should think that this is more important than other places in Scripture, but we need to hear it more because we're so hard-hearted, right? We're so hard-headed that we need to hear this repetitive lesson of of. Everything needs to be about Jesus, his death, his resurrection and ascension. We need to make what we do here today 
about the gospel, and if we don't keep coming back to that message of the Bible, we'll be prone to be just like the disciples. We'll just make this about us. We'll start to say and do things out of self-interest and pride, and that's what church will become about. So we need this teaching from Jesus, then especially when it comes to the uh, category of humility. We need humbled by his, his words. We need this badly. And so this is the third time I'm preaching over this pattern, and it's because we need it. We need it. We always look at the disciples and we think, man, those knuckleheads, they never get it right. They, they, they always forget what Jesus taught. And we think, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like them. We're worse than them. We are way worse than them. Never think that you are better than the disciples. Never think that you would have got it right unlike the disciples. We are worse than the disciples, right? We have the gospel at our disposal here. We, we have it to read and study whenever we want. We still, we, we get it wrong. We need this teaching. So let's, let's just begin by going through verses 32 through 34. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So there it is. He prophesies his upcoming suffering, death, resurrection. They're going up to Jerusalem. Did you notice that? Now, if, if you, you're a geography nut, right, and we've been pointing to my map back here the whole time, Galilee, where primarily all of Jesus' ministry took place, was in northern Israel, and so he's, he's traveling south. He's traveling down, right? When we look on a map, we'd say, we, we'd say he's going down to Judea or down to Jerusalem. But in the text, it says he's going up to Jerusalem. That's because everyone in Israel, no matter where you were traveling from, if you were headed to Jerusalem, you were headed up to Jerusalem. Not, not because of elevation, though that would be the case in some angles from, or from some directions, but because that's the holy city that is Jerusalem. This is where the temple is. This represents the presence of God. And so they were going up to Jerusalem. And no matter where you were coming from, you were, you were headed there, you were headed up. It says that they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Did you notice it said that before he, he mentioned his, uh, or foretold his death and resurrection? They were amazed and they were afraid. Why, why all the amazement and mixture of fear? What, what's, what's happening there? I, I, think that, I think it's important for us to get into the heads of the disciples as we consider this interaction that's taking place. Remember what's swirling through their mind, all these cultural ideas of the Messiah. Some, they have a mixture of like Old Testament, biblical, prophesied ideas of the Messiah, and then cultural hopes and ideas of the, of, of the Messiah. It's just like what's happening with you and I when we think about the gospel, when we think about Jesus. We have, we grow up in a culture that we, we hear a lot of things about Jesus. There's a lot of ideas out there, just an infinite amount of ideas it seems like and perspectives on Jesus. And so we grow up with all of that. 
good, bad, and ugly. And then we go to Scripture, and it's our duty as believers to, to conform to the will of God and to make sure that we get an accurate understanding of who Jesus actually is. We go to Scripture and correct all of that junk that gets in our brains. And so they get a lot of junk in their brains, too. And so they, they, they recognize, though, this, this shift in intensity with Jesus as he heads towards, towards Jerusalem. He's prophesying again about what's about to happen. In Luke 9, 51, here's what it says. It says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. They recognize something is different. He is headed to Jerusalem like he's on a mission. And so they, they think, well, what, what's about to happen? And this is the Messiah, right? We believe this is the Messiah. Is, is there going to be a civil war when he gets there? A lot of people follow Jesus. A lot of people don't. A lot of people like what he teaches. A lot of people aren't fans. Is there going to be a, a military uprising? Boy, they would hope so. They would love nothing more than to get out from under the rule of Rome. And they thought this Messiah would be the one who would do that, who could bring Israel together and form this military front to get away from Rome. And so there was an excitement as they thought about those possibilities as they marched towards Jerusalem. But they were also afraid. And they were afraid because of what Jesus has been teaching here, what he's been prophesying about. How do I, how do I process his death? And did you notice how detailed it got this time compared to the other times he prophesied about his death? And so they're excited, but they're afraid. They can't wait to see what happens, but they're unsure about themselves. And so Jesus, he, he sees this excitement and that fear, and he, takes, he seizes that opportunity to prophesy once more. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, condemned to death, mocked, spit on, flogged, killed. After three days he will rise. So greater detail. I, I think it's worthwhile to, like, like if, you, if you like to, to circle things in your Bible or take notes, like, he was delivered over. He was de who's doing the delivering? He's, he's delivered over. This is part of the prophecy. Now, our minds immediately might go to Judas. Well, Judas, we know the story. He's going to be the one that will betray Jesus, and so he's the one that he's going to take the, the soldiers to go arrest Jesus. So Judas, in that sense, uh, in the betrayal, he delivers Jesus up by identifying Jesus to the soldiers who would arrest him and things like that. But, I, but everybody agrees that that's really not what's uh, being pointed out here. He's being delivered over by God. He's being delivered over by God the Father. He's on this mission, right, this mission of obedience, but he understands that he is being delivered over in this act of obedience. You remember when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's betrayed, just before he's arrested, he's praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. As in, if this is the way I'm going, it's, this is the way that you would have me go. And you, you're going to deliver me up, then deliver me up. I'm okay. I'm going to submit to the will of the Father. And we know this is the way the disciples would preach about it later. Remember the very first sermon of Peter, how he articulated it in Acts 2? Verse 23 says, this Jesus whom I'm talking about, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's saying like, you guys are the ones who arrested him. You guys are the ones that handed him over to the Romans to kill him. But 
ultimately beyond those actions is God the Father who is sovereign over all these things. He delivered him up through those actions. He took the, the most despicable, awful, horrible things that have been, ever been done, killing a sinless man, and he used that to carry out his will. God's that sovereign. You know, it's funny how easily it rolls off the tongue to say God is in control. We love to say that. God is in control. If, especially if we get in a, a, a difficult situation. God is in control. Boy, that is so true. It's, it's true beyond what we can even come close to comprehending. Oh, he's in control. If, if you flippantly say God is in control, like, it is, that is so true, we just can't even begin to understand that. That is, that is, nothing truer has ever been said. So the disciples, here they are, they're excited, they're afraid, Jesus drops another prophecy on them. What are they going to do? This is the third time that they've heard prophecy like this. What do you think the disciples are going to do? Well, we know the pattern, right? We know the pattern that they're about to do something out of pride and self-interest. So let's read about it, starting at verse 35 and take it through 36. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? <laughs> like, recently, recently, Nolan came up to me and said, Hey, Dad, I got a, I got a, a favor to ask of you, but I want you to say yes before I ask. <laughs> have your kids ever done that to you? Like probably all of our kids have, right? I'm about to ask you something and just say yes, no matter what, okay? And of course I'm like, what, right? And I, I, think, that's, I think that's the response that Jesus gives the James and John right now. James and John are like, do whatever we ask of you. <laughs> and, and I think Jesus probably, you know, gave them the stank eye a little bit. What do you want? And, and again, this is one of those moments, right, that we think, well, I'm glad I'm not silly like those knuckleheads. We would, never, we would never just take our requests to God just solely based on what we want, our desires and our hopes and our dreams. We would never just continually or exclusively do that all the time, would we? We're not like them. Just, just tell me yes to what I'm about to ask you. Right? We're just like that, right? We're worse than that. Right? We even have the audacity to grow impatient with God whenever he doesn't do whatever we ask of him? Why aren't you fixing this? This can't be hard for you. What are you doing? We take that approach to him all the time. So the disciples are doing nothing more than what we do every day. We're just so focused on our desires, our wants, what we want to play out. Just do whatever I ask of you. Just do that, God. This is what James and John are doing. They're just like us. Could they get any more self-centered than that? Well, we know we can, so you better believe they are too. Look at verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. We want to be second and third. We know it's all about you, Jesus. You're going to be the Messiah. You're going to be the number one. But we want to be second and third. My one of my, uh, my favorite account of the story is in Matthew. Because when you read about this account in Matthew, what happens is that with James and John is their mom and mom makes the request for them before they make the request for themselves oh the sons of thunder remember this is James and John the sons of thunder how mighty and they got their mom oh look a couple of mama's boys uh, having them plead to Jesus can they be second and third in command in, in your in your kingdom 
And so, uh, you know, they want to be they want to be rock stars whenever Jesus is king. So it's it's, it's great. But you know, I, I think on one hand, it it's commendable, right? On one hand, that they identify Jesus as the Messiah. They not only identify him as the Messiah, but they are certain that he is going to reign as king. I think that's commendable. They believe that this is going to happen. They, they know who he is. They, they are certain that he will be victorious. But on the other hand, it's appalling. After all of the teaching Jesus has had over humility, that none of it has evidently sank in at all. And not to mention, Jesus just said in his prophecy that the Son of Man will be mocked and flogged, spit on, killed. I mean, did they have noise canceling headphones on during all three of those prophecies? And here they are just wanting what they want. That's just all they want. They just want what they want. Yeah, okay, I, we'll just, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to confront you about it anymore. But just give us whatever we ask of you. They just would not accept it. Aren't we just like the disciples? We're worse. We're worse than them. We get things in our minds. We want things to play out a specific way so badly. We get to the point in which we can't even consider another possibility. We will not accept anything less than this idea of what we want and what we desire. And when we don't get that, we get frustrated with God. And we just won't accept it. We just won't accept it. You know, when we make even when we make our requests, which obviously the, the scripture encourages us to make requests to God. It's not, it's not that. But we have to understand that when we make these requests to say, Get us, give us whatever we want, how can we say that or think that from such a limited perspective when we're making a request to one who is unlimited in his perspective? Yet we do. We struggle to accept his will, even knowing from what perspective we make the request and what, respect, what perspective he sits as he listens to this request. But James and John, they want to believe that. They, they want to believe things the way they want to play out, more, despite those prophecies. And you know, Jesus keeps talking about those things, but they have this idea of this earthly reign and how it's going to play out, and they want to be second and third in command. We know you're going to get the most glory, but when it comes to glory, Jesus, we just want to get the second most and the third most. Is that okay? Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He points out the obvious here. You have no idea what you're asking. If you had any clue as to what you were asking, you would not be asking those things. Remember everything Jesus has taught, right? To follow Christ means to deny yourself, to take up your cross. All right, that's what it means to be in the kingdom. And so Jesus here is teaching about greatness in, in his kingdom through this prophecy and through his life, obviously. And, and, and his kingdom, lowliness, humility, self-sacrifice, you know, being last, that's what it means to be great in his kingdom. Those are the qualities we should aspire towards. Those are the qualities that, that make one amazing. They're, they're virtuous, right? But in worldly terms, when we think about those things like lowliness, humility, self-sacrifice, being last, those are humility or humiliating, right? We tend to, tend to avoid those realities. We want to emphasize, rather, in worldly thinking, self-esteem, right? self Self-esteem, self-promotion, 
self-indulgence, treat yourself, as they say. Right? The world emphasizes pride and power and authority and those things. And Get ahead of the other guy. Just do better than everybody else and step on anybody's face and climb to the top. And That's the mentality of the world. That's what it means to be a great, a great person, a great human being, according to the world. Sacrifice whatever you've got to for yourself and get to the top. Jesus', Jesus kingdom, he said, in my kingdom, you have to remember this, guys, it's the complete and total opposite. Greatness in my kingdom is completely and totally different. James and John, like, you want to be great in my kingdom? Are you able to drink the cup I drink? Because that's what you're going to have to do to be great in my kingdom. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that which I'm going to be baptized? The cup and baptism here are representing wrath and suffering. Okay, so like just in the prayer that I mentioned in the Garden of Gethsemane that we'll study, when he prays, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me, he's referring to this wrath and suffering that, that he is headed towards. And he's using baptism in a similar way here. I'm going to be saturated, totally immersed in this wrath and suffering. And so he's saying to James and John, you don't even know what you're asking. Are, are you going to drink that cup and be immersed in suffering? Look how they respond. Talk about overconfidence in verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. We're able. Whatever, Jesus, as long as I can be second and third. You know, as long as we can be next in line and get that glory, whatever. We just want the glory. We just want the glory. That's all this is about. This is about me. Just blinded by delusions of grandeur, right? Whatever I got to say, Jesus, just give me the glory. And so Jesus is just so incredibly patient and loving with with them uh, in their ignorance. And, and what he says next, this next verse, in verse uh, 39 through 40, what he says next, I think, stuck with them the rest of their life. I think what he says next, they would remember later in their life, and it would be one of the most important things that Jesus said to them, in terms of remembering what Jesus taught them as disciples. I think what he says next was first on the list. Listen to uh, verse 39 through 40. And he said to them, and, and they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So he's saying, Hey, you don't, you, don't, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't have any idea about this cup and this baptism and, and what it means and the, the amount of suffering that's there. But you will know. You will know. You will drink that cup. Just so you know, you don't know what you're asking right now. But later, you'll know what you were asking. You will drink that cup. And you will be immersed, baptized in that type of suffering. And we know that that's true in such a miraculous and profound way, too. When we consider James and John, we know that all the apostles were martyred and killed. They all drank the cup. They were all baptized in this wrath, right? But James was the very first one, and John was the very last one. I just think that's like just beautiful and poetic and amazing and profound. James in Acts chapter 12, we see that Herod Agrippa I executes him, the first of the disciples to be executed for his faith. He has his head chopped off with a sword. I just believe that before his death, he had this teaching of Jesus on his mind. I was brought to this point. I was delivered to this point. Just like Jesus was delivered to the cross, 
I was delivered to this moment. He told me it would be that way. He told me this cup was coming. He told me this baptism was coming, and it's here. I think he was thinking about that just before he was killed. And then John, we know he was the last disciple to be martyred. If you read the Fox's Book of Martyr, uh, uh, Martyrs, uh, there is a, another uh, story about John in church history where he was, uh, they attempted to boil him alive, I believe, and it didn't work. And it kind of freaked them all out, and they just exiled him to the island of Patmos. And so we know that that's where he wrote the book of Revelation and where he died alone, where he died alone. He was, he was the last of the disciples uh, to die. But those two, this is the, the irony of it all. They're asking to be second and third. They're asking for this cup and this baptism. We're able, give it to us, Lord. And they got those things in a way they would have never dreamed. They got those in a way that they weren't even able to fully comprehend. But they were hanging on. You better believe they were hanging on to that teaching in those last moments of their life, just clinging to it. So Jesus, he did go on to say that, who would sit at my right hand and my left hand? That's not mine to grant. It is for those whom it is prepared. And so just, again, in the way he was delivered over, the suffering and death on the cross was prepared for him in advance because God is sovereign over all things. Whoever would, whoever would uh, suffer in those ways, the second most and the third most, if you want to think of it in those terms, because remember, greatness in his kingdom, there's this, there's this direct correlation, greatness connected to suffering. Huh? To the degree to which you suffer, you are great. I mean, there's that element. We have to be careful not to get into the poverty gospel when we start walking down that road. So there's a balance there. But he's saying, whoever would end up suffering a tremendous amount, second and third, like, it's prepared for him, whoever it is. It's not me to say right now. It's not for me to say. But whoever, whoever does, it, it'll be, it, it'll, it's being prepared for them by the Father. He's sovereign over that too. So it's not for me to say. I know it won't be any of us, right? No way. Let's continue in verse 41. It says, when, he, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And so it wasn't just James and John being prideful in this moment. The other disciples are listening to this moment, and they're getting angry. Why are they getting angry? Well, they're angry that they didn't get there first. They're angry that they didn't grab their mom to come plead with Jesus so that they can be third and fourth. They're like, man, James and John, they got their mom. Dang it, what are those guys doing? They're already part of the like, inner circle, and it's just not enough. they got to make sure they're second and third, trying to like, you know, even, even uh, nudge Peter out of the way, then get up there. Like, they're, they're growing frustrated because they wish they would have thought of this first. They are jealous of James and John as they are jockeying for position in this kingdom to come. So uh, they're all being just as prideful and just as petty and things like that. They also don't understand or fully grasp what greatness truly is in the kingdom of Christ. So what's going to happen next? Well, we know what's going to happen next. Jesus is going to teach over humility, and this is what you and I need so desperately. Look at verse 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Where do you, where do you, have the, where do you get these ideas about greatness? You're just thinking about the world's ways. 
This is what the Gentiles do. This is what non-believers do. This is how they think of greatness. They get a, a little touch of, a, of authority, and they love to lord it over everybody else. They love to puff out their chest and be so great and let everybody know and make sure that everybody's honoring them and make sure everybody is making much of them and, and that they are displaying their dominance and their accomplishments. That's the world's way of thinking. It shall not be so among you. Remember, my kingdom has this upside-down philosophy. You want to be great, you got to get low. You want to be great, be a servant. You want to be in a position of prominence in my kingdom? Then be a slave. Are you aspiring towards being a servant or a slave? Is that something you aspire to be? Man, I want to be a slave to all. Why don't you think that way? Why don't you think that way? Do you need to change the way you think a little bit? Are you aspiring to be the servant of those around you? You want to be great in his kingdom, don't you? Like Jesus, he just flips our understanding of greatness on its head. And it's so convicting. It's so convicting. We are the knuckleheads, just like the disciples. Did you get up this morning and say, wow, I just can't wait to be a slave to all today. I can't wait to serve people when I get to church. Or I can't wait to be a slave to people on Monday morning when I interact with them. Considering them more, more important than myself, more significant than me. To put their needs before my needs. That's how we, you want to be great? Do you really want to be great in the truest sense, in the, in, 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 in the sense that Jesus taught? That's the frame of mind that we should be in. Because as he says, even the Son of Man, even our King Jesus, he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You're going to call yourself a Christian? He came to serve and die. That should be the mentality that you and I live with then. That word ransom, this is a unique word in scripture. And when you and I think about the word ransom, this is what we think of. We think of a hostage situation, and we want to negotiate with that hostage situation with the, with the uh, captors and ne negotiate payment to, to save somebody. And that's not what would have ran through their mind. This, this word actually had a very specific Greek meaning. And it was to free someone from slavery. It was to pay the amount of money that it would take in order to have someone's freedom purchased and they would no longer be a slave. So you would pay this money so they could be free. They wouldn't be your slave. They wouldn't be anybody's slave. They were leaving the life of slavery because their debt had been paid. Their ransom had been paid. Jesus paid our debt. He paid our ransom. And so in that sense, right, he has freed us from this worldly way of thinking. He, he, he freed us from the wrath of God because he paid that debt. And because of that, we don't have to think of greatness in the terms in which our culture teaches us to think about it. We don't have to step over everybody and, and, and step on their face to get to the top and sacrifice everything it is about them and, and, and everything in this world to make sure I accomplish more than anyone else and I am better than everybody else. We don't have to be, to, to be a slave to that. We don't have to, to be chained to that because our ransom has been paid. We don't have to be the best. We don't have to be the coolest kid in the room. We don't have to sit at the cool table at lunchtime, right? We've been freed from that. We've been freed from that. And we, now we are a slave to righteousness. We're still a slave. We're just not a slave to this worldly way of thinking. We're slaves to the kingdom-mindedness that Jesus taught. Here's how Paul said it in Romans 6, 
Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And of course, we've been freed by the one who's our greatest example, our Messiah. He was the, the greatest, the, the suffering servant. That's who he is. That's the prophecy he fulfilled. He is our King Jesus, and that is the frame of mind. That's this conviction that we should feel right now. It's, it's the conviction we should pray for and not waste so that we can change how we think, how we live, and how we treat others so that we can be a servant of all and a slave to all. So let's go into, in, into the gospel, into a time of communion, and, and think about the gospel in these terms and aspire to be who Jesus is calling us to be in this text. Let's pray. Lord, again, we, we thank you so much for these moments with the disciples. They're so convicting, Lord. We're so much worse than them. We would make the same mistakes that the disciples made in those moments only worse. And Lord, now we have the audacity to think we're so, for, so much further ahead of them, but we're not. Lord, I just pray for conviction today, and I pray that that conviction would not be wasted. Lord, we are, we are your children and we want to be Christians in the truest sense, and that means being consistent with what you taught. Lord, help us to be slaves to all and servants to all. And Lord, that we would follow your example, press into your gospel as we aspire towards these things so that can, it can have meaning and purpose. And of course, that meaning and purpose is your glory. We wanna make your glory known and make much of you and, and, and shout about your mercy and your, and your might. Lord, bless us during this time of communion. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.